CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. And so we come to the end of another week on Political Rewind. It is Friday, June 11th. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today. Um, I think, you know, there, there are many people out there who have been followers of politics for a long time who can recall there was a time when politics slowed down in the summer to some extent, and certainly campaigning for races that are more than a year away uh, uh, became dormant in the summertime. But boy, that isn't the case anymore. And as usual, we have a lot to talk about with our panel on today's show. So let me get right to introducing everybody. Jim Galloway is back with us. Of course, we all know that Jim, for many years, was the uh, premier political analyst at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the author of the Political Insider column, and now enjoying sort of a life of leisure. But as I've always said, Galloway, you're never going to put politics behind you. No, they always pull you back in, don't they? (laughs) <laughs> just when I thought I was out. <laughs> Thanks for being here uh, today, uh, Jim. We're joined by two other uh, journalists today. Maya Prabhu is a reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution covering politics and public policy. Maya, you're in. You, did you just finish covering your third session of the state Senate? Have I got that right? Fourth? Fourth. Okay. Yep. Well, thank you for being uh, here today. We're glad to have you with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. Chart Riggle is here. He's a reporter at the Marietta Daily Journal. Chart, we're glad to have you back on the show today. How are things going? We're going to talk a lot about Cobb County in the next few minutes. How are you doing? I'm well. It's a great day to talk about, talk about Cobb County. Yeah, and we will we will do just that. And Professor Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science, is uh, back with us. And uh, Amy, uh, no rest for you now that you are not only p- professor of political science, but the assistant department or the associate, whichever the title is, chair of the political science department at Georgia State. What were you thinking, Amy? <laughs> Terribly unclear. Um, I guess I very much wanted to get called into meetings about budget and payroll and scheduling. It's absolutely delightful, but we get it done. No, thank you for being here. Uh, Jim, I'm going to start with you simply because, I mean, number one, you're up there in Cobb, as both uh, Maya and Chart are, but you have a particular interest in the Cobb County schools. You have family members who have been working in the school system up there. Yesterday, the Cobb County School Board uh, became the second in Metro Atlanta, Cherokee being the first, to ban the teaching of critical race theory in its schools. Um It's interesting that the chair of the board, Randy Scamahorn, who brought up this resolution to ban it, said the critical race theory is a Marxist concept that pits one group of people against another. He calls it revisionist history, and history should be thorough. At the same time, a board member who recused, the Democrats on the board all recused themselves from the uh, vote, it was the Republicans who voted for it, uh, said we really shouldn't be taking action on something we don't know very much about, Jim. Uh, yeah, I, I've I've got a feeling that uh, that uh, that not many members of the Cobb County Board of Education could really truly define what critical race theory is. Uh, and 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 first of all, let me all history is revisionist history. That's what history is. It's 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 finding more out about a topic and making sure this, the the tale is told more thoroughly. Uh, but I, I, if if we could back up just a little bit, just to, to kind of create a broader template here, uh, this is not an isolated argument. This is a national campaign. It is a national talking point that Republicans have put out. Uh, you've already seen Brian Kemp, uh, the governor of Georgia. Uh, con- condemn uh, c- condemn uh, this teaching. You have uh, you have had uh, other school boards like Cher- Cherokee. Uh, I'm sure others will will uh, take it on as well. 
uh, the Attorney General Chris Carr has come out. So it's it's this is this is this is this is a campaign, and it needs to be po- treated like a p- political campaign. Secondly, you have to remember that even though Metro Atlanta's suburbs are turning blue, the Cobb County Board of Education was the one entity in Cobb County government that 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 remains in Republican hands. It's it uh, be, uh, because of uh, district by district voting. Uh, there's a four three. There's a four three majority, a Republican majority on the Cobb School Board, and that's that's how it passed. You had four four Republicans supporting, and uh, and three Democrats abstaining. Uh, so it's 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 a. Uh, this is not an effort to take politics out of education. This is this is yeah. this is core political politics. Yeah, that's partly why I said that politics hasn't stopped just because what summer is upon us. Um, Chart, let me turn to you because this is really happening in your uh, area of coverage up there. Not you specifically in terms of the school board, but you're the Marietta Daily uh, Journal. One of the things that's interesting is Randy Scamahorn in bringing this resolution to the rest of the board uh, said that uh, he had seen on social media there were postings by some teachers who said they were teaching aspects of critical race theory in their classroom discussions. But again, I don't I have yet to hear anyone who's part of this discussion say they have a clear understanding of what the heck critical race theory teaching really looks like, Chart. Yeah, I you know, the, there was the exchange yesterday during the meeting where um, one of the Democratic members you alluded to earlier, Trey Hutchins, um, you know, raised the issue of should we be voting on this? Should we be approving this if we don't have a working definition? Um, Scammerhorn did not provide, you know, a, a clear uh, laying out of, of what he thinks critical race theory is, but said that, you know, after the governor's uh, comments on this and then the action by the State Board of Education, he wanted to sort of follow their lead. Um, and, yeah, there, we do have some reports of a couple teachers, um, you know, saying that, yeah, this is, you know, a useful uh, a useful theory, a useful approach to learning um, that, that we are working with in our classrooms. Um, but there's not any indication that this is something that is operating at a curriculum level. Um, you know, and as Jim mentioned, um, you know, th- this is surprising in some sense, I think, to the Democrats on the board, because all of this just kind of jumped out of the blue um, really about a month ago. We, people just started showing up to board meetings and, and parents especially raising these issues. Um, but it's also not surprising because, one, the Cobb County School Board is maybe the most animated and divided uh, government body in the county right now. Um, and uh, also there is this this big national campaign going on, you know, states, it, every day it's a new jurisdiction that is that is coming out against this. Um, Maya, why don't you jump in uh, uh, on this? And then Amy, I want to get your thoughts too. Yeah, I just, you know, I find, I find this all really interesting. Like the thing that stands out to me about this is, you know, back on Memorial Day, we had the centennial um, anniversary or uh, memorial memorial for the Tulsa race massacre. And on that day, I shared, you know, some information about it on social media. And I received a direct message from, you know, a Republican activist who said to me, I had no idea that this was a thing until like a couple weeks ago. And I've spent so much time, you know, reading and researching everything I could find about this. This is so horrible. And I said to her, I was like, if people weren't so afraid of the words critical race theory, this could be something that was taught in schools. And she just didn't respond to me at all. So I just, I think it's it's really interesting how on a case-by-case basis, people seem receptive to this idea of a a fuller picture of history, like learning about a fuller picture of history. But when you just say the words critical race theory, they completely freak out. You know, Amy, let's just, you're the political scientist on the panel, so let me really engage you on this one. Um, We know the critical race theory has been around for four decades. And, And it was created initially, the concept was, 
uh, to examine, a, a group of academics said it is time that we examine the role that racism has played in institutions in American life literally for centuries. Um, it, it, and yes, of course, critical race theory does to some extent uh, make the judgment that African Americans have in fact suffered because of institutional racism. But the whole concept of critical, critical racism has been, let's just examine this openly and, and give people a chance to understand how African Americans have paid the price of racism for, for many, many decades, for centuries in this country. Exactly. I mean, so to get terribly wonky for a second as the political scientist and the professor, um, it actually all dates back to the legal realism movement of the 1920s. So this is actually over 100 years old. And the legal realists completely uh, kind of reconceptualized law by saying, look, law is not something that was handed down from on high, kind of out of nothingness. It is written by human beings and then, right, becomes law, right? So men and women, and back then all men, right, wrote the laws, it, they were passed, and then when judges would interpret those laws and apply them, they were, right, reinforcing what had been put into those laws. And many times these laws were a reflection of the power hierarchies that existed at the time and were served to reinforce them. So they did things right back in the 1920s about, I mean, that was when we had poll taxes. That's when we had, right, other types of things that were keeping people out that uh, prevented who was able to purchase land to have ownership over things. And then really, so then we got sort of critical legal studies that came out sort of 1960s, and then critical race theory came a little bit later. But they're all really the same argument of, in order to understand what's really going on, to understand the political world, to understand the laws, to understand where sort of things are coming from, we need to understand what are the sort of power hierarchies and what is being protected in this law, right? What are the values and what are the goals that are being protected. And we need to recognize that, yes, there have been a lot of times that laws were very explicitly passed to reinforce racial hierarchies. Slavery. No other way to put that, right? The Jim Crow laws of the 1960s. But there are also other laws that were passed, which may seem, quote unquote, neutral on their face, but that was the goal redlining, right? So that's where we saw sort of division of who was able to buy houses, right? Restrictive covenants, different things like that. And in order to understand sort of issues that we have and to also overcome problems and get rid of these sort of systemic injustices, we have to know what it was, what do the laws do? So not only sort of what were the motivations behind it, but also what have been the outcomes of these laws. And critical race theory just basically says we want to put it explicitly in the terms of sort of racial hierarchies, right? Basically, part of the reason you didn't see what the legal realists all the way back in the 1920s is that it was a huge deal as it was. It was a bunch of white men saying, hey, this is a problem. But they weren't going so far as to say, we also want to give you know, like recognize what's other people. So they weren't really bothered, right, for example, by women and minorities not having it. But later on, it was, let's look at this explicitly. And I think that's entirely separate thing from questions of sort of diversity training, which are basically about how not to be a real jerk to somebody who doesn't look like you or come from the same background. And it's completely separate from questions of sort of discussing history, sort of as Maya pointed out, there's a lot of things that weren't taught. Right? We weren't taught about the Tulsa Race Massacre. We weren't always taught really about even slavery and how that was introduced. And so these are all sort of separate issues. But critical race theory is literally just the concept that we need to understand the, um, the power hierarchies that get reinforced in law. Jim? Yeah, uh, What's this is a, a kind of a, as we said, this is a national movement, but there is a, a, a particular uh, amount of dissonance here in Georgia, when you talk about this, because the Kemp administration, in its own way, is uh, is is pursuing an aspect of critical race theory and historic revisionism when it comes to Stone Mountain. 
There is, but there's. I mean, just in 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 the last few weeks, they there the 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 governing board there has said we are going to we are going to revise how we how we speak of and interpret. Uh, the 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 symbolism of of the uh, of of the uh, of of the mountain itself and the carving that's on it, so it's 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 you have to wonder how much this de- this national debate may actually freeze what uh, what what's what needs to happen at Stone Mountain. I, that's a great point. Um, it, it's also true that that you know Kemp for the most part has tried very hard to have a diversified uh, uh, administration, and, and he certainly has understood uh, if the, the significance of, of having diverse people in his administration, which, of course, is different from whether you can teach a theory that uh, uh, suggests that students should understand the history of racism. Maya, a couple things. I, first of all, uh, racism knows no geography. Like, I mean, it's an American problem. Um, nevertheless, I'm a Chicagoan, came to Georgia many years ago, and certainly immediately began to really absorb the history of this region in, in terms of slavery, in terms of Jim Crow, in terms of lynchings. And, and, and it, it struck me that this history was so important for us to understand here, or else we don't know who we are in, in the state of Georgia. But here's the other part of that. I'm astonished. I mean, Republicans have done an amazing job getting their uh, supporters to buy into so many things that they uh, have said, you know, Marxist Democrats, uh, Socialist Democrats, whatever. And now it's been amazing to me to watch how quickly uh, parents, school boards, others have embraced this notion that critical race theory is somehow uh, an evil plot. I, I don't understand. It, it's the Republicans must feel good about how they can win their supporters over on things like this so easily. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I failed to mention earlier during the state Republican convention, I don't know what time it is, last weekend, um, uh, they, <laughs> they didn't discuss for very long, but they passed a, uh, or they didn't discuss it all because they passed as a slate of resolutions, but they did pass a resolution, uh, you know, condemning any teachings of critical race theory or the 1619 project in schools. And, um, you know, it was something that was a talking point uh, for most speakers who spoke during the convention. It wasn't, again, it wasn't something that was spoken about in any type of depth or detail. Um, it was a buzzword that generated, you know, it was an applause line. It was something that they knew that they said, that if they said it, it would cause um, people to cheer for them. <laughs> um, uh, we have to make sure that, you know, our children aren't indoctrinated and critical race theory is not taught in our, school, taught in our schools and, you know, the crowd would go wild. Um, but I, you know, I feel like, over the years, Republicans have been very good at generating buzzwords that would make the that that the base would respond viscerally to. And another yes. thing, just to to follow up on what um, Jim Calloway said about uh, Kemp and and revisionist, is you could make the argument that that's what happened with the citizens the repeal of the citizens arrest law, right? That was something that was put in place for the purpose of catching slaves during the Civil War. Literally, that was the law. And because of, unfortunately, what happened to Ahmaud Arbery on the coast, it became something that was important to Governor Kemp to fix. Is that not a reimagining or re you know, revisioning history and changing it to more accurately reflect the times that we're in. You know, that's just, that's something that struck me uh, when, when Chief said that. I, that was, yes, I hear that. Chart? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's interesting that we're, um, you know, we, we talk about this as a, as a political issue, and even though it's not necessarily a, a 
politics as such issue. Um, I mean, the, the two things that always get, especially in suburban areas, always get people worked up are education and uh, housing. And these are the two things that are burning up Cobb County right now, are the school board and, and zoning issues. Um, and, you know, it, it is kind of incredible how from maybe a month or two months ago, most people probably hadn't heard of this, to yesterday I saw uh, Vernon Jones' new TV, or I guess not TV spot, but sort of rollout ad for his campaign. And it just says, you know, no CRT in our schools. And everyone knows what that means all of a sudden. Um, and but but this is, you know, something that this is kind of the latest iteration of, you know, maybe before it was, um, you know, the teaching of evolution, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Common core. Common yeah, core. Yeah. Yes. Um, 60s and 70s, we had the, the sort of sex education, civil war um, in, in schools. So, uh, you know, these schools are always kind of, I guess, proxy wars for for larger like cultural battles um and and it feels like this is kind of the the latest iteration of that i that you know what that thank you um your observations all of you are on this uh, really helping me understand what we're dealing with even better and amy i want to um change the 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 focus just a little bit on this because the cobb school board yesterday also condemned the teaching of the new york times 1619 project so uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, that was a project that was launched back in 2019, the 400th anniversary of the year that the first uh, slaves, chattel slaves, were brought to uh, American shores. And um, I'm going to, you know, this has been condemned broadly as well as teaching a racist uh, theory of history in this country. Nicole Hannah-Jones was the um, woman who oversaw that project. And Amy, I want to read just from the introduction briefly, because I remember when it first uh, appeared, how struck I was by the lens she put on our history. And here's what she says in the first paragraph of the introduction to this entire project. In August of 1619, a ship appeared on this horizon near Point Comfort, a coastal port in the English colony of Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists. No aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the years of slavery that followed. On the 400th anniversary of this fateful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully. Our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. Black Americans have fought to make them true. Um, Amy, I understand that there are people who would really bristle at the notion that our founding ideals were false, but, but weren't they? It has long been something that is difficult to teach well, right? We say, right, the Declaration of Independence talks about all men are created equal. But of course, at the time, right, all men weren't. Uh, many were not landowning, right? Those who were not landowning were, in fact, not supposed to be able to vote at the beginning. They, they were prohibited from owning land. You had those who were enslaved. Uh, women were not. That was not men as in sort of a broad thing. It was literally those who were of the male sex, right? Women were not included in any of this and would not, in fact, right, be given the right to vote until 1920s. Uh, Native Americans were not actually fully given the right to vote until uh, the 1960s, which a lot of people don't realize. And so there is this real disconnect between sort of some of the, the statements that were made and the ideals that were argued in the founding documents and the actual reality on the ground, right? And we see that in the debates over, right, the first drafting of the Constitution and the fact that there was, in fact, slavery and what to do with that and what to do with slave states and how to determine who is going to be brought in. And so I guess what I would say is there are lots of, right, there are lots of things that one can potentially criticize or be critical of or different interpretations that come from the 1619 Project. But what I think it's really trying to do is to take us to tell us to stop for a second and rethink and reconceptualize and see how that might change our interpretation or how that might cause us to have a broader view of something, right? No one has to agree with everything, but the idea is to try to understand it 
and to then see how that might shape it. And there's a lot of points of it which are not incorrect, right? It is actually really difficult to teach U.S. history, to teach constitutional law, and deal with the fact that there is, yes, a total disconnect between what the Declaration of Independence says and the actual laws that were on the ground at the time. It, Jim, jump yeah, in. It, it, yeah, it, it's it's look the 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 easiest way to approach this is is to uh, is is to address the fact that that uh, these American ideals, these declaration uh, ideals contained in the Declaration of Independence, were aspirational. Uh, they are they are they are they 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 weren't facts on the ground. They were they were uh, where we. Are headed. It was it was an intention of where we want to go with this nation, and uh, just quite you know. Look, this is a very human nation. We fail quite a bit of the time. We fail and fail and fail, and every now and then we learn something and we get a little bit better. You cannot, but you cannot. One thing that 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 has been a serious problem in teaching Georgia history is. We have this blank spot uh, from the from Appomattox to World War II, the the, mm. the period of Reconstruction and the reassertion of 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 white supremacy in the in the Deep South, and until we can face that, until we can talk about it honestly, we're not exactly going to know who we are, and and the, and this is what what worries me is is that what we're seeing here with with the Black Lives Matters movement of 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 last year. And the Republican antagonism toward critical race theory this year, we are we are setting out our goal lines, and and I am very fearful of what's going to come up in the state legislature, uh, in January, uh, uh, the, to, to that will that will pursue this this kind of this line of argument. Maya, I want to give you a last word before I get to, get to a break. Um, uh, so go ahead and please make your point. Are you there? Have you muted your phone, Maya? I have muted my phone. Apologies. Um, uh, just something really quickly I was thinking about as we've been discussing this is, I, you know, I grew up in northern – I didn't grow up in Georgia. I grew up in northern Virginia. My mother grew up in New York, and I remember um, – I always had more, I would go to school and when I got home, there was always more to learn. And a lot of time, a lot of times I was learning black history. And I remember being in fourth grade and learning about the revolutionary war and my mother telling me, Oh, well, make sure you talk about the fact that the first person to die in the revolutionary war was a black man, Crispus Attucks. And so I go into, into my fourth grade social studies class and I say this to my teacher and she looks at me and she says, what is your source on this? And I was like, I'm 10. So I'm like, well, what? <laughs> so I go home and we make a, we were nerds who had encyclopedias at home. So I go home and I make a photocopy of the Crispus Attucks entry in Encyclopedia Britannica. And I take it back in and like her face just like blanches. It's just, you know, and she was my teacher teaching social studies to fourth graders in the what nineties. So it's just something that I thought about. Oh. What a power. Thank you. That's a, such a powerful story. Um, we got to get to a break. A couple quick things first. Uh, number one, uh, look, there is no question that America has always been a shining beacon of freedom and democracy for the rest of the world. But Galloway put it so well. That doesn't mean it's always worked for every American. And we're still struggling to perfect the ideals of democracy. I think that's important. Another quick note. Nicole Hannah-Jones has been in the news a lot lately after her creation of the 1619 Project. University of North Carolina has hired her, which uh, they were very excited to be able to do. But despite the recommendations of the faculty and, and many administrators, she is being denied tenure, uh, which she probably would otherwise get, if not for the project, uh, by uh, those political forces on the board and big donors to the university. And that's been a big uh, national controversy. All right, we got to get to a break. We have a lot more to talk about on today's show. We'll be back in a moment.
Amy Steigerwald, Maya Prabhu, Chart Riggle, Jim Galloway join us for today's Political Rewind. Chart, I want to pick up a story that, uh, once again, uh, kind of is up there in your territory, the Marietta Daily Journal. Uh, Federal judge yesterday, Valerie Caproni, uh, who uh, works in the Southern District of New York, uh, she took heard the uh, request by an organization called the Job Creators Network, which is a conservative group of business people, uh, who wanted an injunction, wanted a preliminary injunction to uh, uh, stop the Major League Baseball from sending the All-Star Game, holding the All-Star Game in Denver. They want it back in Atlanta, where it was originally scheduled until MLB pulled it over the Georgia voting law. And Judge Caproni, Valerie Caproni, here's one of her quotes to the Job Creators Network. Sam Burmistaz found it this morning. She said, quote, to say that the legal underpinnings of this lawsuit are weak and muddled is an understatement. The plaintiff alleges that MLB and the Players Union, they were also sued, were members of a conspiracy to violate JCN members' constitutional rights I am still at a loss, said the judge, to understand how. Now, Chart, there's no question that pulling the All-Star game out of Cobb County hurts businesses up there to some extent. Um, but this lawsuit seemed a little specious to begin with. Yeah, I, I you know, I, the judge, I think, made a good point um, talking about the MLB's motivations for this uh, in her comments yesterday, where she said, you know, referring to Senate Bill 202, this elections uh, debate, that's a policy debate that maybe MLB doesn't want to have. And I think that's entirely accurate. Um, but, you know, we, we talk about these um, these damages they were seeking, you know, the, the, the damage to small businesses. What's interesting about that to me is that, um, you know, Bill, I think you mentioned yesterday that that hundred million dollar figure is a it, we'll never know what what exactly the. The, the loss was, um, which I think is kind of uh, perfect for everybody, because everyone on, on both sides of this has kind of just taken that $100 million figure and run with it. Um, you know, Fair Fight and Stacey Abrams have touted this. Um, we had Kevin McCarthy coming to Marietta. We've had Kelly Leffler knocking on doors for a house race, um, putting up billboards that say, you know, $100 million up there in, in big gold letters. Um, and I think it, it is a useful argument for everyone because it it allows you to put, instead of talking about these concepts like election integrity or voter suppression, which are very real-world concepts but um, are, are somewhat, you know, sort of ideological, it allows you to put a price tag on all this in a, in a material way and say $100 million, that's what we lost. And, you know, if you're a Democrat, it's because of, because the bill was passed. If you're a Republican, it's because of, you know, the Democrats' misrepresentations of the bill and, and cancel culture and all that sort of thing. Um, but it, it's, yeah, it's just interesting to me how, how that that number has kind of just been tattooed on everybody's forehead. Yeah. Amy, you uh, pointed out uh, before the show started that Judge Caproni was none too uh, civil in the way she dealt with the plaintiffs in this. And you you have another quote from her about this as well that you uh, can share with all of us. Uh, well, she ended it by the, the plaintiff's lawyer asked whether or not a copy of the transcript of the hearing would be put into the uh, court record, at which point she, um, I thought very nicely, but perhaps cuttingly, reminded him that he could purchase one from the court recorders, who, of course, are small businesses that he should be supporting. <laughs> oh. um, and I, that was perhaps summed up incredibly well how the rest of the hearing went. There was a bit of a disconnect between the arguments that were being made and what the actual legal standards are and arguments that have been um, accepted in courts through time. And that wasn't happening here. And it really sort of shows the, the problem of a political argument is not necessarily a legal argument. And I think that's really what we saw here, right? One, we, we can disagree on policy, but that doesn't mean that now there's a, a legal remedy to be had or a legal harm that's been suffered. Uh, we should point out, uh, Maya and Jim, that although uh, the judge denied the preliminary injunction, which would have moved the game back to Atlanta had she granted it, uh, the case is still ongoing. There will be a hearing 
as to whether uh, the, the Job Creators Network's uh, contention uh, about job, about business loss and their, their demand for a billion dollars in punitive damages can move forward. Um, but Maya, what's, I, I think one thing that's worth pointing out as we talk about this is um, the people who are behind the Job Creators Network, uh, Robert and Rebecca Mercer, are two of the biggest supporters. And we know, of course, they've been enormous supporters of Donald Trump. And our own Bernie Marcus, one of the founders of Home Depot, has been deeply involved in the Job Creators Network, too. And he, of course, has been a, an, an adamant and, uh, and significant donor to Trump over the years. So once again, politics underlies all of this. Yeah, definitely. You know, it, it, it's interesting. I think the quote in the story that I read about the um, about the ruling on the preliminary injunction was like, I assume you're still going to want to argue the merits of this case. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if they will. It seems like, according to the judge, they have some homework to do. They need to figure out how to um make their arguments in a way that are more compelling if if there are arguments that can be made in a way that are more compelling to the judge and you know like you said politics is completely intertwined in everything we do these days <laughs> whether we like it or not yeah you know what's what's interesting here is what you have to i want to build on something that amy said you know, winning in this particular case uh, addresses it it's, uh, uh, in a spectacular fashion. Winning the legal argument isn't the point here. I don't think. I think this is about this is about uh, presenting the political case. And what we have to remember is that it's not going to stop between now and 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 mid July. This is the issue that Brian Kemp used to revive his his uh, his uh, his. Uh, his future uh, in the face of uh, opposition from President Donald Trump. This is the very issue that he latched on to uh, to get in, ba- uh, get in good with the uh, Republican base in Georgia. So, um, all right, we're going to watch to see how all of this unfolds. Um, but, uh, Jim, I, I just want to reemphasize something the chart talked about real quickly, and that's uh, again, he's, Chart's right. And, and yesterday on the show, I did point out, and Jim, you've covered enough presidential uh, uh, nominating conventions to know this. Uh, the, the estimates of what businesses are going to make at major events like the All-Star Game conventions, or whatever, they're always inflated. By the end of every convention I've covered, and I've done 10 of them, as I said yesterday, there's always a story in the local uh, media that says, uh, oh, uh, the business at restaurants didn't do as well. Uh, The cab drivers were shut out, you know. So Chart's right, I think, to point out that when you put a figure, a a money figure to this, it makes it sound all the more dire, but it isn't necessarily true. No, and, and and it's this in this case it is particularly wedded to the uh, to the 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 kind of the argument over whether we should be publicly funding athletic stadiums. I think. Oh, oh, that's Galloway. Thank you for mentioning that. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and we've got a lot more to talk about when we come back on Political Rewind. <laughs> Um, last night, Kasim Reed held his birthday bash, his major fundraiser, and did what everyone has been anticipating for a long time now. Uh, and that's uh, he's announced, he's declared he will be a candidate run, uh, to run for a third term as mayor of Atlanta. Greg Bluestein, Maya, had told us on the Wednesday show that despite the fact this was a private gathering, he was, de- he was definitely going to find a way to get into this party last night. Uh, either he or Patricia Murphy did. The two of them are... Uh, have byline on this in the jolt this morning. And here's the quote on the winding staircase inside Tyrese Gibson's massive Buckhead mansion, former mayor Kasim Reed launched a comeback bid with these words, tell LA, tell New York, tell Charlotte, tell Dallas, tell Chicago, and definitely tell Miami. I'm back. Kasim Reed running for mayor again. And Maya, there is no question that the crime will be the number one, if not the only topic, 
that Kasim and the other candidates will talk about as this race unfolds? Yeah, you know, crime has become a major, a major, like the major issue of Atlanta politics these days. And, you know, as I think about it, it's really interesting to me, um, you know, with the pandemic last year, uh, everyone was at home, you know, crime dropped kind of in a lot of ways. And now I just, part of me wonders how much of this is tied to like people just kind of losing it a little and being a little stir crazy. Um, but I, I wonder, you know, well, not, I wonder, uh, during, you know, in some of the coverage that I've read about, uh, former mayor, Kasim Reed, you know, he says, I think, I think the quote was he could fix things in was it 180 days maybe? Um, and he's done it before. He knows how to, he knows how to get a handle on crime and he's done it before. And so it's going to be, um, it's going to be the, the major issue of the campaign. And, and I think that, um, he's going to, there's a possibility that he can pull a lot of backing from, um, Republicans in this tough on crime stance that they like to take in a lot of their campaigning. Um, and another thing that I found was interesting was I know last year there was all this talk about defunding the police, defunding the police and reallocating funds and, and, and putting money in other places. And I think uh, the most recent budget numbers increased uh, police by I think it was 7%, the police budget. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out and um, and if people kind of buy what uh, Kasim Reed is saying. Jim? Yeah, um, you've you've got a lot of skepticism out there in, 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 in Atlanta political circles. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, off air you were you were pointing to the, the, the quote in today's jolt from Shirley Franklin. Who who who's, who says uh, supporting Reed would be a a, a a step backward, and and she made allusions to some of the problems that he had uh, during his administration. Uh, but I think if if you want if you want to make sense of what he's doing, I think you've got what you've got to remember is that that the the mayoral election in Atlanta has become a two step process, and the first step is getting into a runoff. There are going to be at least at least I, I think what we're up to five candidates so far. Yes, probably. So, yeah. okay. So let let us let us suppose that Kasim Reed is 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 polling only at nineteen percent, say, uh, which which you would say is is not good for a, for a for a uh, a, a two two term mayor of Atlanta, but nineteen percent would be enough could be enough to get him into a runoff and then once that happens you've got a uh, you, you've you've got a very very quick uh, kind of run up to choose sides and you have uh, whoever can can wed Buckhead to Southwest Atlanta is going to be the winner um, so chart I want to go back to what uh, uh, Jim is beginning this conversation about that's important but but I want to ask you as a journalist uh, to weigh in on something here. Of course, you're in Metro Atlanta, so what happens in the city of Atlanta matters greatly to your readers up there in Marietta. But, you know, the Atlanta mayor's race is incredibly important uh, to the entire state. Our show reaches a statewide audience, so I'm trying to gauge, as we move forward, how much time and attention uh, to the mayor's race in Atlanta is 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 going to be important to us, and how will we tell this story so that the entire state listening audience recognizes its value? Help me with that chart. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. I, I cover Cobb County, but I live in Atlanta, and it was weird to me for the first few months of this year just how little attention this race was getting. Obviously, that all ended mm -hmm. when Mayor Bottoms and she was not running for re-election, um, and is just you know skyrocketed with Kasim Reed's sort of. Sunset Boulevard moment on the spiral staircase. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I think there will be a lot of attention on this. You know, there's the there's the the Buckhead cityhood aspect of all this. I'll be curious to see how that affects all this. We've got 
a, a number of cityhood movements going on in Cobb County right now. We had someone at a Marietta City Council meeting this week um, who was, you know, lobbying for more police funding say, well, we don't want Marietta to turn into Buckhead, do we? Which a year ago would have just been like, meant a completely different thing. Um, and then the other thing I think will be interesting on a statewide level is I will be curious to see, given uh, the reporting that um, has been done on, you know, allegations against Hasim Reed with regard to contracts at the airport and things like that, whether or not we see a revival of the state's attempt to take control of Hartsfield-Jackson. Um, wow. I'll be very curious because that, that seems to have kind of fizzled out um, after I, it was either last year or two years, two years ago, I think. Um, but, you know, if, if Kasim Reed is mayor, I have seen people in Atlanta saying, you know, if, if he wins, then Brian Kemp will, you know, make a large part of his reelection campaign about running against, you know, corruption in Atlanta, against mismanagement, against crime. Um, but I, I, it definitely will change things for 2022, I think. Um, and, and could have a lot of impact in the legislature. So, um, Amy, let me suggest it and get you to amplify this if you agree with me. One of the ways we make this uh, m more uh, uh, meaningful, perhaps, to our statewide listeners is to remember the, one of the things that Kasim Reed was rightly celebrated for during his tenure, and that was the partnership he was able to form with a Republican governor, Nathan Deal, and the mutual benefits of their friendship and the way in which they supported uh, one another um, helped. So as an example, um, the, the, uh, when you know, we had a Democrat in the White House uh, and, and, and uh, Deal had access to the White House because of Kasim Reed's friendship with uh, the Obama administration. Um, the Georgia Ports Authority, you know, Kasim was able to argue for the deepening and, and the addition of funds for the Savannah Port to be deepened. On the other hand, um, the city benefited from uh, things like uh, Porsche headquarters, which the governor supported being uh, kept in Atlanta. So the ability for a, a Republican governor and what is probably <coughs> going to be a Democratic mayor to work together has benefits for the entire state. Most decidedly. And I think the other side of it is that in many ways, right, there's sort of this feeling, you know, understandably so of, of those that don't live in Atlanta or the metropolitan area of not wanting to hear that partly their livelihood is dependent upon what's going on in Atlanta. Um, but of course, this is where, right, a lot of the, the money sort of comes in, right, to, right, this is where most of the, like a lot of the industry is. This is where, you know, when, head, when business headquarters move here. But I think it's just as important that the health of Atlanta, right, in the metropolitan area is dependent upon what's going on in the rest of the state, right? It helps Atlanta if we ensure that our agricultural industry is operating the way that's supposed to. And so it was, in fact, leaders in Atlanta that were pushing to try to ensure that uh, funds were sent down after Hurricane Matthew, right, and other natural disasters there. As you said, like, it helps Atlanta that the port was deepened and that way, right, necessary construction materials and other things can be able to get here. And so in that way, it is, in fact, really important for all of the state that there's this good working relationship because one of the things that we've also seen is that there's been... Um, shall we say some petty fights that have gotten in the way of reaching uh, good solutions to things over the past couple years, given the sort of very public dislike of Governor Kemp and Mayor Bottoms for each other. Um, instead of being able to work together, for example, during the pandemic, we instead, uh, th th there was a lot of antagonism and things like that. And so it really is one of those where, um, there's a lot of ways it goes both ways. And as you sort of pointed to that, you would have right a, a mayor of Atlanta can really help with getting needed efforts out to um, other parts of the state that really need it because, you know, the mayor of Atlanta is going to be the next recognizable um, also political figure in the state for better or for worse. Jim. Uh, yeah. Just to, uh, to, to kind of build on what chart was saying earlier. Um, 
I don't know what Kasim Reed's relationship with Brian Kemp is with the governor of Georgia, if, 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 if there's any relationship. But I know he has strong ties to the state legislature where he served for a number of years. His relationship with David Ralston is pretty strong. Uh, I would imagine that he's got some uh, some some close friends in the state Senate. So uh, I think one of if, if I'm a Kasim Reed, one of the pitches that I'm making is is that is that. Uh, making me mayor is one way to keep the Atlanta airport in Atlanta hands. Uh, so, so I think that that might that we might look look to that. Uh, the other thing is if he is uh, if if his uh, campaign is is built upon getting Republican votes out of Buckhead, I think it also might undercut the city of Buckhead movement. Uh, because they would have, they would have, they would have entree to the mayor's office in a way that they might not otherwise have. Yeah. Uh, by the way, a chart I want to give you a second here, but let me say we're going to dig. I was going to try to get into the Buckhead City issue today. We're not going to have a chance to, but we're going to take it up on Monday because it's a very important chart. Yeah, I mean, to speaking to all those points, I think the other thing from the statewide perspective will be. How does this affect, you know, the, the sort of state government's approach to crime in Atlanta? Um, because we've had Governor Kemp doing these operations with the state patrol in the city against street racing, against shootings, that kind of thing, um, sort of saying that, you know, you guys can't take care of this on your own. We need to step in. We had David Ralston earlier this year saying uh, he wants the state government to take more active role in this. Um, and so it'll be interesting uh, how how that works out. And as Maya alluded to, I will be curious to see sort of what positions Kasim Reed takes on these these issues of criminal justice and policing. You know, what happens to the city jail? What happens to the police budget? Are we going to hire more officers? All that kind of thing. Um. All right. Um, thank you all for a really fascinating conversation today. We're just about out of time. Uh, for Political Rewind today. Um, Jim Galloway, Maya Prabhu, thank you very much for being here. Chart Riggle, you know, I, I do want to say, um, Maya and Chart, we've really, I think for each of you, this is like your second appearance on Political Rewind, and it's been great to add you to our uh, group of people who join us uh, for the show. So thanks so much for to both of you for uh, participating uh, today. Hey, by the way, quick uh, question, Amy Steigerwald. Uh, um, have a good summer uh, and get out there and do your best as the associate or assistant department head at Georgia State University, okay? <laughs> well, thank you. I shall try. We have a new president finally. It's very exciting. That's right. That's right. The new president has been announced. We don't have time to talk about that today. All right. We're out of time. We're back on Monday. Jim Galloway will be back with me for uh, Monday's show. Um, take care. Stay healthy. I don't know what to say about masks. It is still important to have your mask with you, I think, and uh, be careful uh, even if you're vaccinated, and please, if you're not vaccinated, go get a vaccine. And if you have been vaccinated, try to convince a neighbor that it's time for her or him to do it as well. That's it. Have a great weekend. I'm Bill Nygut. See you all back here on Monday. Bye-bye. <laughs>